Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology Episode 1 The Relationship Between Psychology and Science You should be aware that psychology is a science and its study is based on the same underlying principles as the physical sciences. In this episode, I'll be talking about what science is and how psychology has modelled itself on scientific principles. So what is psychology? It aims to understand the mental processes and behaviour of human beings and to make predictions about their behaviour using scientific methods that can subsequently help us to understand other people and also ourselves better. Some psychologists would also add the controversial aim of controlling people, and this links to a free will versus determinism debate. To what extent do humans have the free will to make their own choices, or is everything we do predetermined by internal biological factors or external environmental ones? There's no one single view about what psychology is or should be. In fact, there are many different ones. Everything from how we explain behaviour to what we should be studying and what research methods we should use. A debate in psychology is between those who want to work through a nomothetic approach using scientific experimental methods to generate laws of behaviour and those who prefer to work from an ideographic approach focused more on an individual's understanding of events and situations. So starting with the nomothetic approach, we're saying that psychology wants to understand, predict and explain human behaviour based on scientific evidence. This raises the question, what exactly is it that makes evidence scientific? And how can we distinguish between science and pseudoscience? Now, whether something can be considered scientific depends on the process of how that knowledge is sought, whether it's trying to prove the truth of a concept or whether it's trying to disprove it. Let's start with a hypothesis. A hypothesis is the explanation that the researcher puts forward to interpret the behaviour they have observed, and it's the starting point for any investigation. Hypotheses often take the form of a statement such as, if X happens, then Y will happen. The hypothesis needs to consider the key variables the researcher can measure. Variables can be independent, and that's known as the IV, and that's manipulated by the researcher, or variables can be depend on other variables, and these are called dependent variables. The experiment needs to be designed to test the prediction you've made in your hypothesis. The results of your experiment will either support or not support your hypothesis. Because this is science, we never talk about proving our hypothesis we leave all that sort of thing to pseudoscience. So consider the following experiment. Step 1. Observation. I observe that Anglo students who don't get enough sleep don't seem to do well in tests. Student 2. The aim. 
So I start to wonder, does the amount of sleep an Anglo student gets the night before a test have an impact on their performance? This Is this something I would like to investigate? Step three, the hypothesis itself. I may come to a statement that says Anglo students who get more than seven hours of sleep the night before a test will get better grades in that test than those who get less than seven hours sleep the night before. In this step four, our independent variable is the number of hours of sleep an Anglo student is getting the night before a test, whilst number five, the dependent variable, is the score that that student gets in the test. Step six, the experiment itself. I need to work out a procedure. I need to work out what I'm going to do. So um, I've no way of knowing how many hours sleep students are getting the night before a test. So I'm going to need to ask them. I will do a survey. I'll then ask the students to take a test, match the results of the test to the number of hours of sleep. I'll have two groups, the low sleep group who got less than seven hours and the high sleep group that got more than seven hours. And I'll do a bit of analysis to try and see if there are real differences between the two groups or if it's just down to individual differences and a little pinch of randomness on the day. Now, we shouldn't underestimate individual differences. They're a huge factor in psychology. We're all different and we all react differently to different situations. This natural variation makes it very hard to create universal laws of behaviour. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, some psychologists really don't think this is what psychology should be about in any case. We should be looking at individual experiences of the world. Another factor that makes it difficult to create universal laws of behaviour is that behaviour can be understood at a number of levels. Starting with the most basic unit, molecular neurochemical processes like genetics, neurotransmission and drug actions to see what effect they have on our behaviour. Are we just the result of nature with our behaviour controlled by our internal biology? This is what the biological approach in psychology investigates, looking at the role of neurotransmitters, hormones, genes and brain structures in human behaviour. There's a whole branch of biological psychology called evolutionary psychology, which focuses solely on the impact of our genetic inheritance on our behaviour. On another level of explanation, we could also look at how other people or groups influence our behaviour. This is the social approach in psychology. When you study the behaviour of people in groups, you're looking at how we're affected by the behaviour of other people. Consider the phenomenon called groupthink, as well as conformity, obedience, minority influence, cooperation and conflict. At another level again, we're also influenced by the culture in which we're brought up, and this has a great influence on our behaviour, identity and attitudes. An example of this is your gender identity, what boys and girls are expected to do in society. This varies considerably from culture to culture. This is the socio-cultural approach in psychology and is very relevant in this time of increased globalisation and migration. Increasingly, people live and work in a culture different to the one they were brought up in 
and the world faces new challenges in terms of people from different cultures coexisting with a range of strategies that are adopted. They may add to cooperate or make conflict between them. The sociocultural approach investigates areas such as stereotypes, prejudice and discrimination. To make things even more difficult, when psychologists are studying an individual, just knowing that they're being studied is likely to influence how that person behaves. Think about how you might change your own behaviour if you know you're being watched. Despite these challenges, a science practitioner model is fundamental to the practice of modern psychology, based on the idea that the theories we derive from research can inform us about human nature. So in a nutshell, science disconfirms while pseudoscience confirms. Critical thinking and evaluation is vital so we can assess the quality of evidence that's been collected and presented to us. During your psychology course, you'll be presented with frameworks to help you evaluate theories and studies. It was Thomas Kuhn who suggested that the difference between scientific and non-scientific disciplines is a shared set of assumptions and methods. Since there are a number of major approaches in psychology, all with separate assumptions, concepts and preferred research methods, he considered psychology to be pre-scientific rather than scientific. The major approaches in psychology will be discussed in future episodes, so here I'll just list them as they would appear on a psychology timeline. Starting with Wundt and introspection, then the psychodynamic approach, the behaviourist approach, the humanistic approach, the cognitive approach, the social learning or social cognitive approach, the biological approach, although I will just say that that has its origins in very early psychology, but has recently become a dominant scientific influence. And most recently of all, the emergence of cognitive neuroscience, which investigates how biological structures influence mental states, the interaction of body and mind, which takes us right back to Descartes and his famous statement, I think, therefore I am and the mind-body debate, which is discussed more in the next episode. Thomas Kuhn argues that progress occurs in science when an accepted paradigm or framework of assumptions and research is challenged and a paradigm shift occurs. From the list of approaches I've just mentioned, there have been many paradigm shifts as the dominant approach in psychology has changed over time. Science constructs theories and tests hypotheses. An essential component of a theory is that it can be scientifically tested, after which it's either supported, remember, never proved, or refuted. The process of deriving new hypotheses from an existing theory is called deduction. Karl Popper stated that a key criterion of a scientific theory is its falsifiability. Theories aren't necessarily true, they just haven't been shown to be false yet. And this is why scientists avoid using the word proves when they discuss research. Instead of that, they prefer phrases like this suggests that or this supports. An important element of Popper's hypothetico-deductive method is replicability or the ability to do the same study again. Replicability has an important role in determining the validity of a finding as well as its reliability. 
If a finding can be replicated across different contexts and circumstances, then we can see the extent to which they can be generalised to the wider population. Scientific researchers must also try to maintain objectivity, and methods such as the laboratory experiment tend to be the most objective. Objectivity is the basis of the empirical method. The word empirical is derived from the Greek word for experience, and it's a word often used interchangeably with scientific. The experimental method and the observational method are good examples of the empirical method in psychology. Philosopher John Locke saw knowledge is determined only by experience and sensory perception. The implication of empiricism is that what scientists do when they carry out experiments is collect data or facts about the world. An implicit assumption in the scientific process is that over time, we will accumulate knowledge and we will move closer to the truth. There is also an implicit assumption that all psychological domains such as intelligence, personality and motivation truly reflect the actual structure of a timeless and unchanging human nature. But psychology is being researched by human beings on other human beings. So doing good science means that as well as following a scientific model, researchers need to be aware of their own attitudes and biases. A common problem humans have is that we all tend to fall victim to confirmation bias, where we selectively look for evidence which is consistent with our hypotheses, disregarding anything that doesn't support it as a glitch, or we just ignore it completely. Let's imagine that you're browsing online for a product that will help you study more effectively. You find a website selling tablets called Study Boost, which has hundreds of positive reviews and an overall rating of 9.2 out of 10. This is likely to confirm your belief that this product is highly effective, ignoring the fact that there may be alternative explanations for customers' experience with this product. Every positive you notice about your studying after you take one of these tablets is likely to confirm in your mind that the product is good, whilst you might discount or ignore any negative experiences or write them off to other things. So doing good science means you need to keep an open mind about things which may disconfirm your hypothesis and not be selective about your evidence. It's also important that your hypothesis can be falsified or shown to be incorrect. A theory that can't be shown to be false is not scientific. It's a general criticism, for example, of the evolutionary approach, because it can explain literally every human behaviour, but it's very hard, if not impossible, to disprove them. In the next section, I'll discuss the origins of psychology how it grew out of philosophy, and why it's important to understand its origins. I'll explain how these philosophical origins led to the births of psychology as a separate discipline and talk about the work of Wilhelm Wundt, who opened the first experimental psychology laboratory. Thank you for listening to the Origins, Approaches and Debates in Psychology podcast. It was written and presented by Mrs Lawrence.